Section 50 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison. The World's Story, Volume One China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Ava March Tapan. Section Fifty The Soul of the Great Bell by Lafcadio Hearn. The water clock marks the hour in the Tachungse, in the tower of the great bell. Now the mallet is lifted to smite the lips of the metal monster, the vast lips inscribed with Buddhist texts from the sacred Tahua King, from the chapters of the holy Ling Yen King. Here the great bell responding. How mighty her voice, though tongueless, all the little dragons on the high-tilted eaves of the green roofs shiver to the tips of their gilded tails under that deep wave of sound all the porcelain gargoyles tremble on their carven perches all the hundred little bells of the pagodas quiver with desire to speak all the green and gold tiles of the temple are vibrating the wooden goldfish above them are writhing against the sky the uplifted finger of foe shakes high over the heads of the worshippers through the blue fog of incense ko nagai what a thunder-tone was that all the lacquered goblins on the palace cornices wriggle their fire-coloured tongues and after each huge shock how wondrous the multiple echo and the great golden moan and at last the sudden sibilant sobbing in the ears when the immense tone faints away in broken whispers of silver as though a woman should whisper Yai. even so the great bell hath sounded every day for well nigh five hundred years. Ko Nagai. First with stupendous clang, then with immeasurable moan of gold, then with silver murmuring of hai. And there is not a child in all the many-coloured ways of the old Chinese city who does not know the story of the great bell who cannot tell you why the great bell says ko nagai and hai now this is the story of the great bell in the tachungse as the same is related in the pe hiao to choi written by the learned yu pao chen of the city of kwang chao fu nearly five hundred years ago the celestially august the son of heaven yong lo of the illustrious or ming dynasty 
commanded the worthy official, Kuan Yu, that he should have a bell made of such size that the sound thereof might be heard for one hundred li. And he further ordained that the voice of the bell should be strengthened with brass and deepened with gold and sweetened with silver, and that the face and the great lips of it should be graven with blessed sayings from the sacred books, and that it should be suspended in the centre of the imperial capital to sound through all the many-coloured ways of the city of Peking. Therefore the worthy Mandarin, Kuan Yu, assembled the master moulders and the renowned bellsmiths of the empire, and all men of great repute and cunning in foundry work, and they measured the materials for the alloy, and treated them skilfully, and prepared the moulds, the fires, the instruments, and the monstrous melting-pot for fusing the metal. And they laboured exceedingly like giants, neglecting only rest and sleep, and the comforts of life, toiling both night and day in obedience to Kuan Yu, and striving in all things to do the behest of the Son of Heaven. But when the metal had been cast, and the earthen mould separated from the glowing casting, it was discovered that, despite their great labour and ceaseless care, the result was void of work, for the metals had rebelled one against the other. The gold had scorned alliance with the brass, the silver would not mingle with the molten iron, Therefore the moulds had to be once more prepared, and the fires rekindled, and the metal remelted, and all the work tediously and toilsomely repeated. The Son of Heaven heard, and was angry, but spake nothing. A second time the bell was cast, and the result was even worse. Still the metals obstinately refused to blend one with the other and there was no uniformity in the bell and the sides of it were cracked and fissured and the lips of it were slagged and split asunder so that all the labour had to be repeated even a third time to the great dismay of kuan yu and when the son of heaven heard these things he was angrier than before and sent his messenger to kuan yu with a letter written upon lemon-coloured silk, and sealed with the seal of the dragon, containing these words. From the mighty Yong Lo, the sublime Tai Tsung, the celestial and august, whose reign is called Ming, to Kuan Yu, the Fu Yin, twice thou hast betrayed the trust we have deigned graciously to place in thee, if thou fail a third time in fulfilling our command, thy head shall be severed from thy neck. Tremble and obey. Now Kuan Yu had a daughter of dazzling loveliness, whose name, Kornagai, was ever in the mouths of poets, and whose heart was even more beautiful than her face. Ko Nagai loved her father with such love that she had refused a hundred worthy suitors 
rather than make his home desolate by her absence. And when she had seen the awful yellow missive, sealed with the dragon seal, she fainted away with fear for her father's sake. And when her senses and her strength returned to her, she could not rest or sleep for thinking of her parents' danger, until she had secretly sold some of her jewels, and with the money so obtained, had hastened to an astrologer, and paid him a great price to advise her by what means her father might be saved from the peril impending over him. So the astrologer made observations of the heavens, and marked the aspect of the silver stream, which we call the Milky Way, and examined the signs of the zodiac, the Huang Tao, or yellow road, and consulted the table of the five Hin, or principles of the universe, and the mystical books of the alchemists, and after a long silence he made answer to her, saying, Gold and brass will never meet in wedlock, silver and iron never will embrace, until the flesh of a maiden be melted in the crucible, until the blood of a virgin be mixed with the metals in their fusion. So Kornagai returned home sorrowful at heart, but she kept secret all that she had heard, and told no one what she had done. At last came the awful day, when the third and last effort to cast the great bell was to be made, and called Nagai, together with her waiting-woman, accompanied her father to the foundry, and they took their places upon a platform, overlooking the toiling of the moulders and the lava of liquefied metal. All the workmen wrought their tasks in silence. There was no sound heard but the muttering of the fires, and the muttering deepened into a roar like the roar of typhoons approaching, and the blood-red lake of metal slowly brightened like the vermilion of a sunrise, and the vermilion was transmuted into a radiant glow of gold, and the gold whitened blindingly like the silver face of a full moon. Then the workers ceased to feed the raving flame, and all fixed their eyes upon the eyes of Kuan Yu, and Kuan Yu prepared to give the signal to cast. But ere ever he lifted his finger, a cry caused him to turn his head, and all heard the voice of Ko Nagai sounding sharply sweet as a bird's song above the great thunder of the fires. For thy sake, O my father! And even as she cried, she leaped into the white flood of metal, and the lava of the furnace roared to receive her, and spattered monstrous flakes of flame to the roof, and burst over the verge of the earthen crater, and cast up a whirling fountain of many-coloured fires, and subsided quakingly with lightnings, and with thunders, and with mutterings. Then the father of Konagai, wild with his grief, would have leaped after her, but that strong men held him back, and kept firm grasp upon him, until he had fainted dead away, and they could bear him like one dead to his home. And the serving-woman of Konagai, dizzy and speechless for pain, stood before the furnace, 
still holding in her hands a shoe, a tiny, dainty shoe, with embroidery of pearls and flowers, the shoe of her beautiful mistress that was. For she had sought to grasp Konagai by the foot as she leaped, but had only been able to clutch the shoe, and the pretty shoe came off in her hand, and she continued to stare at it like one gone mad. But in spite of all these things, the command of the celestial and august had to be obeyed, and the work of the moulders to be finished, hopeless as the result might be. Yet the glow of the metal seemed purer and whiter than before, and there was no sign of the beautiful body that had been entombed therein. So the ponderous casting was made, and lo, when the metal had become cool, it was found that the bell was beautiful to look upon, and perfect in form, and wonderful in colour above all other bells. Nor was there any trace found of the body of Konagai, for it had been totally absorbed by the precious alloy, and blended with the well-blended brass and gold, with the intermingling of the silver and the iron. And when they sounded the bell, its tones were found to be deeper and mellower and mightier than the tones of any other bell, reaching even beyond the distance of one hundred li, like a pealing of summer thunder, and yet also like some vast voice uttering a name, a woman's name, the name of Konagai. And still, between each mighty stroke, there is a long, low moaning heard, and ever the moaning ends with a sound of sobbing and of complaining, as though a weeping woman should murmur, Hi! And still, when the people hear that great golden moan, they keep silence. But when the sharp, sweet shuddering comes in the air, and the sobbing of, Eoi! Then, indeed, do all the Chinese mothers, in all the many-coloured ways of peeking, whisper to the little ones, Listen, that is Konagai crying for her shoe. That is Konagai calling for her shoe. End of section 50 This recording is in the public domain.